Ever wonder what history's most famous and infamous people would say if you asked them for their side of the story? Well, this is it. You're listening to Hindsight, an original podcast by Al Jazeera. I'm Charles Dance. This is a dramatized series based on historical events that resurrects some of the world's most memorable figures. You've heard of them, but now it's time to hear from them. The year is 1923. A crowd of veiled women approach a train station in Cairo. They've come to greet two friends, Huda Sha'arawi and Cesar Mabrawi, returning home from the International Women's Suffrage Alliance in Rome. Like the women who come to meet them, Huda and Cesar are both from the Egyptian upper class. Women of this social rank are not often seen in public, and when they are, their hair is covered and a veil is drawn across their faces, revealing only their eyes. But these two women want to change that. They're fighting for their rights. They know that by simply appearing at the conference, they've taken a huge step for women, not only in Egypt, but across the entire region. But what they did next was truly historic. Huda stepped down from the train, reached up, and drew back her veil, revealing her face for all to see. Moments later, Sater did the same. The crowd is shocked, and then they break into loud applause. Some even join in, removing their own veils. The groundbreaking moment sends shockwaves throughout Egypt and the rest of the Arab world. Huda Sha'arawi is known today as one of the first Egyptian women to fight for women's liberation. Her fight for social, economic and civil rights was challenged at every turn. She and the women she fought for had to live with a painful contradiction. While the public supported their efforts, Egyptian society continued to deny their basic civil rights. I was born on June 23rd. 1879 in Minya, in Upper Egypt. My mother Iqbal was from the Caucasus, a mountain region lying between the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea. She and her family became refugees during the Russian invasion, and when she was only nine, her mother sent her to Egypt with a friend, hoping she'd be safe there. She was raised in the harem of a trusted friend, and eventually married my father as his second wife. At this time, the second wife, especially a Circassian wife, was a symbol of class that solidified bonds across wealthy households in Egypt. The children of such unions, like Huda, were heirs to two traditions. I was my parents' firstborn, followed soon after by my little brother, Umar. My mother was always strong, but also very private. In many ways, I was raised by two mothers. My father's first wife, Um Kabira, was always there for me. Her real name was Hasiba, but to me, she would always be Um Kabira, big mother. I didn't realize then that having two mothers was out of the ordinary, or that it was exceptional that my mother and Um Kabira were good to each other. My brother Umar was often sick, and my mother had to tend to him a lot. 
So I'd spend many hours with Um Kubira instead. Her son, Ismail, had died before I was born, and she had never recovered from losing him. Most days, she didn't want to get out of her bed. Occasionally, Umar and I would encourage her to stand up and get some exercise. As she walked from room to room, we would run ahead of her, clapping with excitement. As for my father, Sultan Pasha, well, he was so wealthy and important that people nicknamed him the King of Upper Egypt. But to me, he was a boya. He encouraged me in everything I did. Every morning, Umar and I would go to his room after his prayers. We would rush in to kiss his hand and and he would greet us with kisses and chocolates. He died when I was five years old. I missed his warm voice, his embrace. I spent my childhood in a three-story house with high ceilings. We had the most beautiful big garden with fruit trees. Here, Umar and I would play out our most daring adventures. But it wasn't long before I realized I was treated differently from my brother. No matter what the situation, Umar was always given more attention. He was put first in everything. Huda was so strong-willed. Even when she was young, she didn't realize how differently men and women were treated. Um Kabira said it was because he was a boy who would one day inherit the family name and support us all. My mother said it was because Umar had a weak constitution. (sighs) Neither answer satisfied me. I wanted them to pay attention to me as much as they paid attention to him. I dreamed of getting sick so that they would fawn over me as well. And when I would get sick, I delighted my family's care and attention. But even then, Umar would often catch the same sickness and the entire household would focus on him instead. You might think I'd be jealous, but I never blamed my brother for it. If anything, he was my best friend. We did everything together. We shared the same lessons, the same games. We trusted each other, but were never equal in the eyes of others. When the doctor recommended my brother be given a pony for his health, I asked for one too. But I was told that ponies are not suitable for girls. I told my mother other girls had ponies, and she couldn't deny the logic, but she had an ace up her sleeve. She gave me a choice, a pony or piano lessons. She knew how much I loved music. I chose the piano lessons. After all, I reasoned that this way, I could get a new piano and simply ride my brother's pony. Clever indeed, but this might be what you'd call an upper-class problem. Piano lessons or a pony? At this time in Egypt, there were girls who could only dream of having this kind of choice to worry about. It was at this time that Uda started her education. Education for girls was rare, even for someone from the upper class. I loved to learn. I loved Arabic the most. But the Quran was hard. We had to memorize all of the verses, and I kept making mistakes. Our tutor said it was because I didn't know the rules of grammar. So he brought me a book to learn from. 
But Saeed Aga, the eunuch who served as our shadow, refused to let me have it. He said, The young lady has no need for grammar. She will not become a lawyer. Those words stayed with me, but they didn't stop me. By the time I was nine, I finished memorizing the Quran, an uncommon feat for a girl. My mother was so proud, she threw a party where I recited verses in front of everybody. I was eager to read. I bought books from peddlers who came to our home, even though I was forbidden from opening the door to strangers. I studied Turkish, French, poetry, calligraphy, and piano. I loved poetry. And my love for it grew when I met the poet, Saida Kadiga Al-Megrabiya. She was inspiring. Yes, she. At the time, it was common for poets to come to people's houses. And when she came to ours, the whole household gathered to hear her recite. It wasn't common at the time for a woman to speak with men outside the family. But as a very accomplished poet, Saida was an exception to the rule. She was fascinating. Unlike most other women, she didn't tremble with embarrassment in the presence of men. After spending time with her, I became convinced that with learning, women could be the equals of men, if not surpass them. She was happy to read it to me, but told me she couldn't teach me to write poetry. Again, I needed to know grammar, morphology and prose, and no one was willing to teach me that. Not knowing these things infuriated me. Sometimes I hated being a girl. And while Huda's childhood may have seemed sheltered to her, things were about to get a lot more severe in adolescence. Growing up, my brother and I played with the boys in our neighborhood. But that all ended when I turned 11. Suddenly I was forbidden from playing with them and forced to stay in the company of girls and women only. So much of my new situation confused me. When I was young, I could leave the harem, but now I was rarely allowed to go outside. If I did, I had to be veiled and cloaked. The only men I was allowed to spend time with were my relatives. This was common for young girls like Huda in the late 1800s. She had entered a new phase of her life as the daughter of an upper-class family in the harem system. To the uninitiated, the word harem carries with it other connotations, often evoking images of exotic customs. But in reality, the harem was simply a portion of the house where women and young children conducted their daily lives. Simultaneously, the word referred to a man's wife or wives. Retreating into the harem also meant donning the veil, Girls of all religions in Egypt at the time, Christian, Jewish, Muslim, typically put on the veil for the first time around the age of 10. It signified their entry into the world of adult women and into a state of seclusion from men, other than close relatives. Veiling and seclusion were also marks of social status. Separate living quarters and eunuchs to act as guards and go-betweens were only for affluent families who could afford the practice. And then, just as she was adjusting to this new way of living, life for Huda was about to change drastically again. I overheard my mother and my aunt talking about a marriage match to one of the protégés of a local government official. 
As an heiress, I was a desirable match. But my mother thought it was a threat to our family and possessions. My aunt suggested a match with my cousin, Alicia Arawi, the son of my father's sister instead. I was terrified. I didn't even want to be married, let alone to a man who was so much older than me. Ali was 39 years old and already married. I was only 13. He had children older than me. And, as the legal guardian and wealthy trustee of my father's estate, Ali had always been more of a father figure to me. He was imposing and stern. I would eavesdrop at the door to listen to him speaking with my mother. I could tell my mother was angry. I didn't know why. Time passed. I assumed the proposal had gone poorly and it slipped from my mind entirely. Then, one day, my mother asked me to pick a few pieces of jewellery from a box. I was so excited. I picked a diamond necklace and a bracelet to show Um Kabira. She smiled and added a ring of her own to my hand. I was thrilled. Huda was oblivious that these diamonds were part of her engagement to Ali. A few days after I was given the diamonds, I was called to my mother's room. Her eyes were red and swollen from crying. Ummi, why are you crying? Um Kabira had died. A part of me died that day too. I was so blinded by grief, I didn't see what was coming next. In the winter of 1892, my mother took me to Helwan, a city on the banks of the Nile. It was there that it was suddenly announced to me that my cousin Ali had finally asked for my hand in marriage. I was stunned. This, on top of Um Kabir's death, broke me. I cried for hours. I didn't want to marry him. I was a 13-year-old child and he was a grown man. I wanted to play games with my friends, not become someone's wife. But had Huda refused at that point... It would have been a disgrace to her father's name and a complete shock to her mother, who'd spent months negotiating the terms of the marriage. For some time after our wedding, my husband showed me kindness. We lived in an elegant and glamorous house, and I wanted for nothing. This relatively happy marriage to Ali wouldn't last for long. Though the 20-plus year age gap was common at the time, being married to someone who is essentially a child and who has no interest in behaving like a wife took its toll on their marriage. Ali's good temper did not last long. I had no idea why at the time, but soon he became short with me and began to pray more frequently. <laughs> I told him he must have done something wrong to need such repentance. And then I found out what that was. We'd been married a little over a year when my mother came to visit, fuming. Why are you so angry, Umi? My mother had apparently arranged a contract that guaranteed that my marriage to Ali would be monogamous. When we were married, he had actually left his first wife and their children. But now, he was expecting another child with her. He had broken the contract. My mother assumed I would also be devastated. But to me, this was freedom. Do you remember 
When I said you must have done something to evoke God's mercy so often, it seems it's clear to us all now. Goodbye. Fifteen months after their wedding, Huda and Ali were separated, but not divorced. As such, Huda was in the unique situation of being a married woman without a husband. I went back to my family home and took advantage of the situation to focus on my education. My brother Umar introduced me to Eugenie Lebrun, the French wife of an Egyptian man. Of course, everyone called her Madame Rushti. She had converted to Islam and began to write books about Egyptian customs in order to enlighten European readers. She would go on to become one of my closest friends. She took me under her wing, inviting me to take part in her Saturday salon, where we discussed social practices, including veiling. I was shocked to hear some of the European women in attendance accuse Egyptian women of using the veil to mask immoral behavior, while in Europe they had to behave correctly because their faces were always visible. Ya Allah, this is not true. The veil is not about hiding immoral behavior, please. Madame Rushti privately confided in me that she was worried the veil might stand in the way of our advancement. Regardless of the discussion surrounding the veil, there was a movement of thinkers early in the 19th century, before Huda was even born, who began to discuss the need for women to enter mainstream society, not only for their benefit, but for the social and economic development of Egypt itself. Qasim Amin, a well-known judge, had written a book stating that Islam did not require women to veil and that the practice of veiling and seclusion had kept women from enjoying the rights that Islam granted to them. Sadly, both Qasim Amin and Madame Rushdie died in 1908. I often thought of Madame Rushdie's wisdom whenever I faced a new challenge. For seven years after their split, Huda avoided several attempts at reconciliation with Ali. But she could only resist for so long. When I realized Umar was waiting for my reunion with Ali before being married himself, I finally agreed to reconcile. I insisted on certain conditions. To my surprise, Ali agreed to all of them, and we were reunited. No longer a child... Their marriage now seemed more manageable for both of them. Surprisingly, Ali appreciated my desire for social action and my concern for our country. He respected and supported my pursuits. Shortly after our reunion, I gave birth to our daughter, Bathna, and then our son, Mohammed. I adored my children. For a while, they became my world and I was distracted from my pursuit of education and social action. Then, I met another remarkable woman named Marguerite Clement. She was a women's rights activist on a tour of the region sponsored by the Carnegie Endowment. She asked me if Egyptian women were in the habit of giving and attending lectures. I admit they're not, but perhaps you might give one? Good evening. Allow me to introduce... Mademoiselle Clément. It was a huge success. We decided to invite Mademoiselle Clément to give a series of lectures for women. And soon after, Egyptian women were also invited to speak. 
This was a significant turning point in social norms of Egypt. Women leaving the seclusion of their homes to gather en masse in public places was boundary-pushing. Then, through private donations and fundraising, we established the Muhammad Ali Benevolent Society, a dispensary for medical supplies and treatment for poor women and children in Cairo who are in desperate need of help. Doctor, doctor, please, the young woman in the bed, she needs your help, please. This society became an important meeting place for women outside of their households or harems. Yes, for upper-class Egyptian women at least. Huta often overlooked lower-class women as leaders in this cause and favoured those in her class. Individuals who were able to raise money by throwing elaborate charity balls. I was always busy. First we opened a school for girls, then we founded an intellectual association for Egyptian women. And while Huda worked hard to improve the lives of others, she suffered great losses of her own. War broke out in Europe as Ali and I were traveling with the children. At the same time, my mother's health was in rapid decline. My friend Atia stayed by her side and arranged for a telegram, confirming we were on our way to Alexandria to see her. We rushed home to Egypt, but it was too late. Umar and I grew even closer after my mother's death. We saw each other every day. But one morning, I arrived at Umar's estate and noticed a silent crowd filling the streets. This was not normal. It was, however, customary for the funerals of important men. Please, someone tell me what is happening. Where is Omar? Please! My brother's wife greeted me at the door in tears. My dear Omar had died from an aneurysm. He was only 37. Omar had been my little brother, but he had also been my best friend. He believed in me. I have never, in all my life, felt such grief in my soul. Then, everything in Egypt changed. The people of Egypt had begun to push back against the British occupation. In 1919, after the November the 11th armistice, a delegation of Egyptian nationalists, known as the Waft, made a request to the High Commissioner, Reginald Wingate, to go to London to plead for Egypt's independence, assuming that the British would then withdraw their military forces. The British refused. So the Waft, which was originally formed in opposition to British occupation, became a political party. Ali was a founding member, and eventually the acting vice president. Our country's future was something Ali and I could always agree on. We were united in our nationalistic efforts. And he kept me informed of the party's work, so I could take his place if he was imprisoned or exiled by British forces. More importantly, in the country's moment of need, we women rose to the task. I joined my sisters to lead a protest against the British on March 16, 1919. We poured out of our harems, wearing veils, to demonstrate with male university students in the streets. We started a revolution. 
Women marching in public was practically unheard of. These women defied the social norms of Egyptian society and risked violence by the people they saw as their colonial oppressors. Only a few years earlier, Huda, along with the rest of the world, had heard of Edith Cavell, the English nurse who was executed by a German firing squad for helping hundreds of British, French and Belgian soldiers escape during the First World War. Cavell had become a symbol galvanizing public opinion against Germany. Despite the risk, Huda knew that a public demonstration of unarmed, veiled women would attract both local and international attention, likely helping to guarantee their safety. Even if there was a massacre, she knew it wouldn't go unnoticed. We carried flags and placards, but as we approached the House of Nation, British troops surrounded us. I stepped forward. Go ahead! Kill me! Go on! Make another Edith Cavill out of me! But I had to stop when we realized that if we provoked the soldiers, we'd be risking the lives of the students as well. So instead, we came together in a standoff against the British troops for hours. This was a momentous occasion. Women of all classes marched that day and the conventions of the harem were ignored by men and women alike, united against what they saw as imperialist oppression. The story of this daring act spread beyond Egypt, drawing the interest of the International Women's Suffrage Alliance. After that, I threw myself into political activism. All Egyptians, men, women, rich, poor, all of us were necessary for our nation's freedom. We consoled relatives of the injured who'd faced violence at the hands of British forces. We visited the wounded, helped the poor, and organized strikes to apply pressure on the British. Sheikhs walked arm in arm with priests and rabbis. We formed the Waftists Women's Central Committee, and I was elected president. In 1922, I opened my house to a mass meeting of women to discuss their boycott of British goods and services. Under Islamic law, women inherit money and property in their own name and use it as they wish. Women who were responsible for running households and looking after families played a major role in how household money was spent. And Huda and her compatriots planned to use this to their advantage. We will stop purchasing anything produced or run by the British. We will hurt them in their pocketbooks. The boycott of all British goods and services by the Women's Waftitz Committee gained massive public support and allowed for the promotion of Egyptian products instead. Huda and her colleagues had found a way to exploit the British assumption that Egyptian women were powerless in the national struggle to their advantage. We were essential. We facilitated communication between the WAFT and its exiled members. We played diplomatic roles in negotiations, dealt with finances, monitored the health of the detainees. The all-male members of the WAFT even sent a letter to us stating that they would never forget our great service, that our boycott was one of the most powerful weapons in the struggle against Britain. 
1923, the tide had begun to turn on the British occupation of Egypt. And with what felt like the possibility of constitutional independence on the horizon, Huda and her fellow patriots were looking to a better future for all members of Egyptian society. Which is why, after all their efforts to sustain the resistance, they were sorely disappointed with how they were repaid. As the new government took power, they declared a new constitution stating that all Egyptians are equal before the law, but only men were given the right to vote. I refuse to see the fight for Egyptian liberation as more important than the fight for the rights of women. So, I formed the Egyptian Feminist Union with the same women who marched with me in the streets. We established clinics, schools, scholarships and literacy programs. We advocated for women's suffrage, education, employment and changes in personal status and family laws. We did all of this and fought for Egyptian independence. Huda endured this tumultuous time feeling especially alone as her husband Ali had died in early 1922. We had disagreed on more than one occasion. I had actively avoided him for years, and yet Ali had also been my guardian, my supporter, and my husband. After everything we had been through together, it felt strange that he was gone. Despite the loss of her husband, Huda was undeterred. In May of 1923, along with two other members of the Egyptian feminist movement, we set out to attend the 9th International Women's Suffrage Alliance Congress in Rome. On our way back to Alexandria, it was Saiza, the young, passionate daughter of my good friend Adila, who was convinced we should take off our veils at the station. I wasn't opposed to the idea. The focus of my efforts had been the British occupation. But... After some discussion, I was convinced. Okay then, we'll do it. And when they pulled into the Cairo train station, Huda Sha'arawi cemented her legacy. Okay, are you ready? Wahid Idnain. Huda stepped down from the train, reached up and drew back her veil. Afterwards, Huda only wore a veil to cover her hair, but her face was always exposed. In January of 1924, the Waft came to power, winning a majority in the Chamber of Deputies. But women were barred from the celebration, with the exception of the wives of ministers and other high officials. The day the Parliament opened, both the Waftist Women's Central Committee and the Egyptian Feminist Union were at the gates to protest. But when the new Waftist government gave in to British demands, Huda grew increasingly frustrated, writing an open letter to the head of the party in the newspaper Al-Akhba, demanding he step down. Later, it would be I who resigned as president of the Waftist Women's Central Committee. I chose instead to focus on the Egyptian Feminist Union to advance the rights of women. And some of this, Huda was indeed able to achieve. We were able to raise the minimum age of marriage for girls to 16. Having been married at 13, this was especially important to me. 
And this feat of raising the minimum age of marriage was achieved in Egypt years before it was legislated in the UK. I argued for easy access to divorce and restrictions on polygamy within the Islamic framework. In 1924, the first secondary school for girls opened in Shubra, and by the end of the decade, those girls were some of the first to ever enter university. We helped to create employment for women in textile factories and retail shops, expanding education in health and legal professions. And I was awarded the state's highest honor, the Nishan al-Karmal, the female Egyptian order of knighthood. Towards the end of her life, Huda was sometimes nicknamed the Lioness. In her memoirs, she wrote, Women are bright stars whose lights penetrate dark clouds. They rise in times of trouble when the wills of men are tried. Even abroad, she helped women organize in France, Palestine, and across the Arab world. In 1944, she became the first president of the Arab Feminist Union. But she would not live to see Egyptian women granted suffrage. In 1947, at 68 years old, Huda Sha'arawi died of heart failure. In 1956, Egyptian women won the right to vote. Huda was a feminist who fought for herself and others at a time when women like her were rarely allowed to leave their homes. Without a doubt, Huda Sha'arawi changed history. Hindsight is an Al Jazeera original podcast, produced by Kelly and Kelly. Their team is director Chris Kelly, series producers Lauren Berkowitz and Michael Tanko Grand, co-producer Jody Camilleri, executive producers Chris Kelly and Pat Kelly. This episode is written by Lima Alize. Story editing by Michael Tanko Grand. Huda Sha'arawi is played by Ajaz Awud. This episode is narrated by me, Charles Dance. Editing and sound design by Paul Tedeschini. Additional editing by Max Collins. Sound engineered and recorded by Vaudeville Sound. Associate producer Nessa Arif. Translation by Abdullah Al-Masalam. Research and fact-checking by Al Jazeera and Joy Lee. Script editing by Danilo Havaleshka. Hala Sudani is Al Jazeera's senior copy editor. Joe DeFrias is Al Jazeera's executive producer of podcasts. Hindsight is an historical drama podcast. All dramatized scenes and dialogue are inspired by actual events, old interviews, and in some cases, new conversations with people close to the subject.